Yes, the moon is rising. There it is, happiness. It's coming nearer and nearer. I can hear its footsteps. And if we do not see it, if we do not recognize it, what does it matter? Others will see it. This is from uh, Anton Chekhov's The Cherry Orchid, or Orchard, depending on you know, how you're raised. The moon is rising. Its light has changed the landscape. Will we perceive it? If we don't, others surely will, and where will that leave us? How are the possibilities of missiology changed in the light of the world Christian context? The reality of the world looks different now. Global cultural diversity, unprecedented technological changes, the realities finally acknowledged of world Christianity, all ask for fresh examination of classic categories and methods, church planting, Catholicity, interfaith dialogue and solidarity, Christendom, hermeneutics, all need to be revisited and investigated again. What is the future of Christian mission in the new millennium? Today I talk with David Congdon and John Flett, both previous guests on Love, Rinse, Repeat. Welcome them back. Uh, they have edited a volume asking and responding to these questions, Converting Witness, the future of Christian mission in the new millennium, out now. The book is a celebration of the life and work of Daryl L. Guda and serves up chapter after illuminating and challenging chapter that will be indispensable for anyone interested in the sentness of the church. Uh, John Flett is the Associate Professor of Missiology and Intercultural Theology at Pilgrim Theological College in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, his previous works are The Witness of God and Apostolicity. And David Congdon is the Acquisitions Editor at University Press of Kansas and an Adjunct Instructor at the University of uh -oh, Duberk Theological Seminary. I'm sorry, I, that's, I only even read that word, not said it aloud. Uh, his previous works are The God Who Saves, A Dogmatic Sketch, and The Mission of Demythologizing, uh, the big Portland Please welcome both David and John to the podcast and to the video, and welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Oh, my name's Liam Miller, by the way. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of Love, Rinse, Repeat with two guests, uh, David Congdon and John Flett, who have edited together Converting Witness, the future of Christian mission in the new millennium. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks, Liam. Uh, so maybe, you know, some people will have known you guys um, from previous interviews or just from around the traps, but some might not, and particularly some might not know how you guys are connected. So I guess how does it come that you guys, uh, you know, met? What's the story that gets you two to going, let's edit a book together? Uh, you can go take this one. All right. Uh, well, I think you know John was ahead of me by a few years at Princeton. Um, see, when I arrived, you were already in the doctoral program, I believe, at that point. Two thousand three, I started. Yeah. So I I, I arrived in two thousand five as as an MDiv student, um, and I had John as a professor for at least, I guess, one class and maybe. Uh, I'm trying to remember all the details now. It's been, it's been a long time. <laughs> I had him for I had him for one class, and uh, and then we interacted in other just by virtue of being in the same location. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly all the details about that, but that was the main mm. point of contact, I believe. And and certainly, I, I had an essay I wrote that I gave to John to to, re, to edit. <laughs> I tore it apart as John is wont to do, uh, which was which was great. <laughs> and then uh, I guess from there on, I mean, it was sort of just conversations. And uh, there, then, of course, the Bart Conference on mission that was a that was a big um, joining together of like-minded folks on this topic. So, um, <clears throat> and certainly, Daryl Guter himself was a a point of mutual interaction and, and, and conversation so does that sound about right yeah and then he was my editor at ivp and ripped my book apart so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, yeah. Around, yeah, 
Yes, a few <laughs> several years later, right? I um, I acquired his book on the possibility for university. So, um, and and we had this thing where I, I would <laughs> we had many Skype or Zoom sessions to talk about the product and the manuscript. So <laughs> that was <laughs> I I repaid the favor he paid made, paid my essay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although you had to read a lot more, I guess, uh, the, the book. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And so then how did it come to, I guess, approach uh, wanting to pull together this this collection of works? John, was that you? You uh, sent me a message or some point? I believe well, there was a, a further colleague of ours that uh, American, but he was teaching in New Zealand. Uh, he suggested that it would be good to do something for Gouda, um, his own life circumstance when he was unable to do it. So me and David got together and uh, yeah, and it's a worthwhile project, right? He's a good guy. Mm. Well, maybe that's a good chance to, to get into uh, Daryl Gouda, who, you know, this is a collection of essays in honour on celebration of his life and work. And, uh, you know, the first chapter is you guys write together, um, a life of continuing conversion uh, about him. So, for those who, maybe like me, um, didn't know this name coming into the book, uh, maybe give a little bit of a, a rundown of who Daryl is and maybe the importance of his his work, both either personally uh, in your own journeys and in terms of the wider field. Honestly, did you say that you'd never heard the name Daryl Gouda before going to the book? I, 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 I am going out on a limb and admitting that on... Really? What sort of bloody teacher am I? <laughs> well, I mean, perhaps it came across and then uh, did not stick. So that yeah. could be more on me than, than anyone else. Um, but even if it had, it wasn't like a, yeah, something that had embedded in or works I had uh, spent time in. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, Daryl uh, was my doctor father in uh, Princeton, but before that... So me personally, I got to know him through the gospel in our culture movement uh, in the States when it was sort of in its pomp and circumstance in sort of 2001, 2002. Um, then I went to Princeton to work with him. But for, for me, he, he um, sits really nicely on the line between mission studies, systematic theology, Bart studies, and he sort of combines all those together uh, and does in a way that's really, I think, gracious and uh, it, it sort of reflects his personality, his ability to take complex thoughts and present them in a way which is uh, really usable at uh, different levels within the life of the church. And he does it all with, you know, a gracious, fantastic personality. Hmm. Yeah. David? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, Daryl was one of those figures who I kind of hovered around campus for me I never I don't know if I actually had a class with him directly uh, in fact if I if I'm thinking back about it he guest lectured in church history or systematic theology one of those two courses and um, I remember the very first time I met him I was a first year student at, at in the MDiv program there at Princeton and I came up to him after the, his lecture his guest lecture on mission and I thanked him for translating God is the mystery of the world uh, by Eberhard Jungel which I had read um, the year before I started seminary. Uh, and I, I, read, I spent a year just reading Jungle's works, all of that I could find in English at least. And, uh, <clears throat> and that book in particular had a huge impact on me. Uh, and <laughs> I remember his only comment in response to me was, um, now just read him in German. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like, you know, or something to that effect. You know, there's much more in German you need to read. And... And it was sort of like this both deflating and also the, this kind of encouraging comment to um, investigate further. Uh, so I, I went on and did that, but it was a really um, important moment for me to kind of connect with this person who I only associated him with his translation work. That was the only <laughs> thing I knew him by. I didn't know any of his other writings at that point. That was, you know, my, was my entryway was his work on translating Bart and Jungel. Um, and later, of course, it, it you know, I, engaged his work on mission. But uh, when I was in the PhD program there, I co-taught with him on the missional theology and practice course. And that was, uh, that was an important point for me, um, kind of bringing together his interest in mission uh, and my own interest in, in theology and translation and, and other, other topics and hermeneutics. So 
Hmm. That's great. Well, you know, we've, you know, you're mentioning about the, the mission thing and that's in the, the subtitle here. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at the books on my shelf and I have, you know, the mission of demythologizing. I have apostolicity, which is part of a missiological engagement series. And I have the witness of God and, and the God who saves has a bunch of mission stuff. And so guys, what's with all this, this mission thing? Isn't that, you know, isn't that where all the problems are? You know, what's, what's going on? What's the, what's, what's happening here? Problems. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, it goes back to my, my days at Wheaton, actually. I mean, I was, I was, I had an anthropology course at Wheaton college that, uh, where we read Andrew Walls. And I remember, um, reading some of those essays, uh, on translation uh, at the time, I had no, no understanding of theology whatsoever, and it was uh, a totally different field from what I was studying at the time. But it was kind of immediately interesting to me. And uh, when I when I eventually got to Princeton, um, it was sort of the side interest of mine. I, I I knew I was interested in topic of translation and mission and other related concepts, but it had no connection for me materially to what I was studying or what I was interested in in terms of research. Um, And at some point, uh, my first year, maybe second year in the PhD program, I, uh, for me at least, it was, I I was doing this Boltmann thing, which I had assumed at the time was completely independent of what Guder was interested in. And I remember coming across some writings in Boltmann where he talked about mission, the church being a missionary church was in there. That was a, a kind of an aha moment for me in the library at, at Princeton in the microfilm cat- you know, catalog uh, where I found that phrase. And um, so, so some of those, when I found that and then I, and then I realized you could, you could re-narrate all of Boltmann's works in terms of the talk, topic of mission and translation and, and some of those categories. Um, that's when I began to recognize that what I was doing, what I was talking about with Guder on, the, on these other side talk conversations, his, his BART conference suddenly had a bearing on my own research. And so um, that for me was how that came together. Um, but um, I think... You know, more recently, though, I certainly have come to grapple with more of the problems. You know, I mean, reading Willie Jennings and, and other figures who uh, critique La Manzana and Andrew Walls very heavily, um, that's been a more, more recent uh, conversation for me in trying to figure out how to, how to address that concern. But that's, uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, John, I know in a previous interview, we've talked and you, and you said uh, something to the effect of the less you talk about mission, the more you stand guilty of colonialism. Uh, so, so, you know, what, why, what it keeps drawing you um, to thinking and talking and fostering conversations about Christian mission? Well, one of the big misnomers, of course, is if we think we're not doing it, then we're not doing it. Right. The problem is the more we think we're not doing it, the more we are doing it the more we are trying to convince every time you have a conversation, you're trying to convince someone of something, right? That's, that's what it's all about. So to pretend that we're um, going to retreat into an aesthetic, right? Some sort of pious little space that uh, we're going to be ourselves and pretend that that little pious space doesn't become normative. And then we don't try and other, make other people attached to that normativity. So the, more you ignore that type of issue, the worse it's going to be. The more you're going to reinforce some sort of mindset that says, actually, this is the norm, this is the norm, this is the norm. And the majority of, so I can name a few names and I won't, but, the, you know, some contemporary theologians, the more I read contemporary theologians that sort of eschew any sort of notion of mission, the more you realise that they're down their own little rabbit hole and they're unable to speak to anyone else. Hmm. So I don't think, I mean, clearly, there is a certain white saviorism that is happening very clearly in this part of the, you know, this political climate, which is clearly false and it needs significant critique, but you don't critique it by ignoring it. Mm. You critique it by confronting it. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, 
David might not know the name Israel Folau. Do you know the name Israel Folau? No. So Israel Folau is a, is a sports person down in this part of the world. He, he's a Pacific Islander. His family, are, uh, well, now they're sort of a sect, but uh, he's been fired from the Australian team for um, homophobic slurs in the media. So it's a big sort of debate, like a massive debate uh, within Australian society at the moment. But the reason I bring him up is because of the word sin. So in other words, he has a very particular definition of sin and what sin is. And the fact is, that is the popular definition. So if I'm walking down the road and I ask anyone, you know, what's sin, they're going to say, well, it's, it's moralism. Mm-hmm. So does theology have any response to that? So this, this is a huge debate within the public sphere, and it's all based around some sort of theological currency that no one really talks about and no one really examines. So we can either ignore the, ignore the question and let the right do what they're going to do with it, or we can actually come up with theologically responsible answers to it that actually will bring some sort of light to the discussion rather than letting the trolls win. Mm-hmm. So I think it's exactly the same thing with mission. And mission can be a completely positive life-giving, you know, um, topic of discussion. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that's, that's a helpful, uh, helpful word to have as we go forward. Uh, so you write in, oh, so I, I just want to stay with the subtitle again, because you have this idea, of, and we kind of started to touch on it there, the, the future of Christian mission in the new millennium. And I guess to look to the future or to think of the future implies, I guess, maybe some sense of discontent about the present or at least some attitude toward the present of Christian mission. I wonder if, as you were kind of thinking about the book and your own work, are there, you know, trends you see in the kind of the present of Christian mission that you're hoping this book might act as something of a corrective or are there other trends that you're like, that's a good trajectory and I'm hoping this book picks up and encourages or, or your work in general picks up and encourages. I'll just I'll jump in, and John, you can feel free to <laughs> correct or do any, go a different direction. But I think one of the one of the major questions right now in terms of this uh, field of research is um, there's there's kind of different divides in terms of where people are going. There's the intercultural dimension. There's the world Christianity tra- trajectory, um, and and Guter himself represents kind of this. Uh, Kind of almost neither, uh, neither nor. Kind of, uh, he, you know, it's um, he has this whole missional missional church background, which is kind of what his his name is associated with the missional church book, um, and the word missional is kind of attached to his his legacy and his name uh, for better or for worse. And I think there's um, ongoing questions about uh, which avenue of theological and and uh, well cultural research is. Uh, the way forward in terms of thinking about mission. Um, I mean, I think uh, Daryl himself is probably going to be the first to say we, the term missional isn't the, isn't the, the goal or isn't the point of his work. You know, that was, uh, it was useful at the time and maybe is, is probably less useful now. Uh, but what's, what's this next stage forward? And I think, you know, this book in particular uh, I, w- I guess I would say leans more towards the intercultural side, but it has world Christianity development uh, aspects in it as well. So it has kind of both in there. Um, it doesn't really take a, a position in terms of this is the field of research or program that needs to be pursued, uh, but sort of offers readers uh, a bit of all three. You have the missional, the missional conversation, you have the intercultural conversation, and you have the, the world Christianity conversation. And they're all sort of represented in the book in different formats and, and approaches. Um, and so in that sense, it's, uh, it's not set, sort of setting forth a program. This is how we need to uh, move into the next millennium, but, um, but presenting readers with the v- variety of theological uh, resources for thinking about this topic. Uh, I don't know. John, if that sounds right to you or. Yeah, sounds uh, good. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, cool. Well, in so the, these, these are heated, these are very heated conversations though. So, I mean, we're sort of like a, a very, peaceful approach to this but there are people who are very uh opinionated about this conversation which mm. um we don't need to, don't know if you want to get into that topic or not but um we're sort of uh, in my opinion i'm i'm less 
uh, vocal on which one we need to go for with, but I do prefer certain strands over other ones. Mm. So, yeah. John, you want to throw your hat in any ring right now? or? <laughs> oh, I, so I, I think the field of mission studies is uh, so clearly in the post-colonial era, uh, there's a lot of re-assessing, right? methodologically what's going on and it's taken us a good 40 or 50 years to come up with uh, methodological directions mm. uh, and I think we're sort of that things are starting to crystallize at the moment so we're still on a, a bit of a ferment but we start to see clear trajectories that I think um, bring in a, a wider diversity of voices mm. and it's a question of trying to encourage those voices um, we probably wanted more diversity in the book than we ended up getting, but uh, such is the way of things. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, so thinking of the, uh, there's a line in the, uh, in the first chapter that you guys write where you're kind of summarising some of uh, Gouda's um, work as it is God who acts in mission and the community gathered by this acting God responds by participating in God's mission. And you say this is the key to his uh, missional ecclesiology. And, and in the chapter, it leads into kind of an important shift in the way people might go looking in the Bible for missional imperatives. Um, so he just talked to us a bit about how this kind of understanding of God as missionary and we participating in that then shifts how you kind of approach the Bible. Because I thought that was something that probably a lot of people hadn't, wouldn't have necessarily come across before if they think of how do I look at the Bible for mission? I'd probably rotate the question. Mm -hmm. So so one way of thinking about it is when did we start thinking about um, the Bible as a rule book for mission? So when did we start thinking that we approach the biblical text in order to find a command to go and do mission? Mm. Right? So I think we can highlight that as 1792. <laughs> okay. In 1792, William Carey wrote a book called, uh, it's called The Inquiry, but it's The Inquiry for the Use of Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, right? So it's a really long title. But he does two things in this book. The first part of it is looking at what is now known as the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. And he goes through and exegetes Matthew 28 against the reformers. So the reformers wanted to get rid of bishops. Mm -hmm. And an easy way to get rid of bishops was to follow the Catholic argument that said bishops maintained the mission of the church. So if you said the mission ended with the apostles, you've got no need for bishops, you've got no need for Catholic hierarchy, you've got no need for any of that type of stuff. So he talks about how actually this text, uh, go into all the world, is uh, not been undone, right? It's, ne it's never been rescinded. So he says that, and then he ends up using business model, i.e. the Dutch East India Trading Company as a as a strategy for mission, right? Mm -hmm. So we find an imperative and then we go to business, which of course is exactly what we're doing today. It's bizarre to me, right? The the way in which churches are kowtowing to exactly the same colonial models that we saw 200 plus years ago. Anyway, I digress. Uh, what ended up happening, right, is that now he'd, he'd instituted an understanding of mission which was based on a certain strategy but one which had imperative at its base. So then we get this massive exegesis all over the place where people are saying what we've got to look for is commands to go and do mission through the biblical text. And, of course, there are none. There are zero. So it's a, it's a fatally forward program. So in, I mean, in the, in the mid-20th century, you get people like Martin Hengel. Even before then, you get Martin Kaler. They actually start saying, well, if you start looking at who God is within the biblical text, then you're actually going to come up with a different definition of what mission is. Mm. So instead of having a presupposed colonial understanding of mission as some sort of white saviour dude who gets to go overseas and convert, you know, exotic people over, over there, it doesn't appear. Mm. So when you start reading the biblical text to, give, to allow it to give you some sort of definition of what's going on, then you're going to come up with a different definition. And it has to be located in the doctrine of God. So... I think you start off by looking at the narrative and then work out definitions from there rather than start off with any definition, right? Even if it's a definition that basically says God's wonderful, we need to participate in God. If that can't be, you know, if you're not grounding that in a different place, 
it's just going to end up to be some sort of ideological movement down the line. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. David, did you want to add anything? No, I think that's, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess, uh, I suppose I would frame it in terms of like more recently why that, why the, why that topic of, of the missional church or the missional God conversation has, um, I mean, it, the more recent conversation about that has been a response to the current, you know, uh, church growth movement, all the rest, you know, where, you know, it was all about kind of the, the practical ways in which we can magnify our missionary, our mission, you know, tasks and programs and all the rest. And, and part of what, what Daryl Gooder and others were doing was trying to re shift that all into a theological conversation, shift it away from what's the practical manual, of how to like build our, our church programs into um, how do we think about the being of God? How do we think about theology as such? You know, the, the whole discipline of theology was isolated from the question of mission. Mission was a secondary thing that we did after we had our theology worked out, and then we went on and applied it. You know, we, we then you know, put together programs or we you know, uh, you know, disseminated the information to other people who needed it. That was, that was mission. And part of all this... This book and, and the figures who are, are uh, that this, this book is, in, is inspired by, including Daryl Gooder and others, um, are all about shifting that conversation at an earlier point. Theology and mission are not two separate disciplines and programs. They are one and the same program, and, mm. and, and we have to unite them in order to understand, um, in order to avoid the ideological problems that John is talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that comes through in a, a number of the pieces of that, that connecting the two and not as a second order activity. And I think that's a really important um, clarification that the book provides in a number of uh, interesting ways. Um, well, while we're speaking on the Bible, the, the introduction also tackles uh, the, the movement of the theological interpretation of scripture, which, which Gruder kind of had his own things to say about. And so I guess, you know, I've got you two in the room and I want to give people what they want. So let's, Let's talk at least briefly. Uh, you know, as we've started to kind of clarify mission and started to understand it in these different ways and how why it's so important to talk about and not just turn back on a aestheticism and a retrievalism. Um, how does this kind of, I guess, book, you know, speak into this wider um, speak, I guess, against or into the, uh, this other movement? I suppose I should probably take this one a little bit, but <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I. You know, I mean, this was always the point of interest for me in terms of somebody who was working with New Testament hermeneutics and um, uh, that was the, the primary point of interest for the topic of mission in terms of my own research. But, um, you know, the, I mean, Dale Gooder has been very, influential in this conversation in terms of the missional interpretation, uh, missional exegesis side of this whole conversation. And I think uh, it's, it's less well-known than, than it ought to be, I think, in terms of um, that, that work. I mean, they're, they have kind of their own side conversation at SBL and other conferences, but it's a, it's a fairly uh, internal conversation among a group of people from the GOCN and other groups, but it's not... Uh, it hasn't really infiltrated some of the larger conversations, and I think that's um, that's an that's an important issue, both the absence of it and also uh, what's been going on there. I um, I'm just to kind of map it out a little bit. I mean, the missional hermeneutics conversation is uh, it, it is sort of an offshoot of the theological interpretation of scripture movement, which is which precedes it, goes back you know arguably to the 70s, but certainly to the you know 80s and 90s. Um, and, but the missional hermeneutic side, what, what I find important about that is uh, TIS, I'll use the abbreviation that's typically used, TIS um, is so focused on creedalism and doctrinal uh, categories as being the lens by which to understand scripture. And it's, uh, it's it tends to be very much interested in retrieval of classical Christianity and kind of uh, pre-modern modes of exegesis and interpretation uh, as a 
as a direct response to historical criticism and modern historical exegesis. And um, missional hermeneutics has sort of been kind of like this side tangent that almost ignores that debate and says what all this has been missing is the question of the church and the question of mission and the, the kind of on the ground practical reality of interacting with people who are culturally other and foreign and, and the, the, the differences of, of culture and how that affects interpretation. Um, and within that whole conversation, Dale Guder has his own rather unique approach to this, which is um, in some ways to uh, make the, the interpretation of scripture all, uh, very, very practical. Like what is, what interpretation of scripture is going to generate and catalyze the, the work of the church, you know, in its, in, in its, you know, God-given commission within a particular situation? Um, how is it going to form and shape the community of believers to, to live out their calling? Um, it's sort of a, the, the, almost like the practical version of Augustine's rule of love, you know, it's, in, you know, whatever generates love is the right interpretation of scripture for, for Guter. It's whatever generates the formation of the community and builds up the community for its mission is the right interpretation of scripture. And, um, uh, I don't know if anyone else has really taken that up constructively. It's sort of kind of been his own thing. Uh, but, um, anyway, I, that whole, that whole d debate is, is, or conversation is very interesting to me. And I don't know if it's, um, got as much attention as it deserves, I suppose, but, uh, my own entryway into this is through other figures. I mean, I, you know, my work on Boltmann connects with other folks within the missional hermeneutics conversation, uh, Michael Barham in particular, uh, where it's, um, less on the practical side and more on the question of, uh, kind of intercultural, cross-cultural communication and translation. Mm. So, um, but yeah, I don't know if John, if you want to weigh in here, uh, that sounds good. <laughs> well, then um, I'll, I'll throw the next question to you, John. So uh, the first, after the introduction, the, the next uh, uh, article or essay is written by Stephen Bevins, and, and he kind of engages or builds on your work from Apostolicity, uh, your book, which we talked about earlier, to explore the mark of Catholicity through a missional lens. Um, what was it like, I guess, you know, thinking about this piece, reading this piece as, a, you know, a building off or a conversation with what you had already done. Um, and I guess maybe as a way into that, you know, talking about uh, the kind of Ruta's um, flipping of the four marks of the church to look at them as missional ministry practices. We can kind of both talk about that part broader as well. Uh, what was the question? Uh, so what was it like reading um, uh, Stephen's chapter, you know, given that he's directly engaging apostolicity to now talk about Catholicity at, in, a, in a missional lens uh good when you're reading it as an editor right you get different eyes um stephen bevins is catholic so he's going to come up with a certain um data set that's going to be different from where i would personally go uh it strikes me that there are so many key theological loci which simply have not been considered through a more dynamic lens and to draw on the TIS discussion, we always want to go to this um, static way of living. Right? We always want that sort of security. And once we start getting into that security element and start theologically codifying it through certain terms, um, I think that's where, where real injustices start to creep in. So the question is, how can we turn or how can we think theologically, missiologically through these major marks in a way that is open to peace, justice, grace, and all of the, the good things that we're looking for. So instead of just, you know, um, it becoming a bone fight over whose tradition is the most correct to actually open that entire discussion up in a way that's more generous and more generative of, um, you know, finding truth, working out what's going on. Um, 
so, you know, I can only support that type of discussion. David, do you want to talk a bit about the, you know, that flipping of the flipping of the four markers of the church and, and your thoughts on, on how that then, you know, opens up the conversation? I mean, my only uh, thought, I mean, that was one of the, uh, I remember that was one of the key points that uh, Guter would make in class uh, often. That was one of the ones he would go to frequently. And um, yeah, I've always found that to be an especially helpful point in particular I, I, I understand all that in terms as, as a response to the ecumenical movement uh, and, and a way to address some of the problems within the post-liberal conversation about ecumenism, which has often privileged kind of formal unity over kind of the active dynamic apostolicity, um, trying to find ways of of doctrinally unifying the churches. If we just have this common doctrine of the Eucharist, if we just have a common doctrine of baptism or something like that, then our churches will be united, right? That's kind of the implicit assumption along among some of that work. Uh, and part of what Guter is doing, and, and here he's kind of, he's following Bart and others, is to say uh, the church is what it's called to do. It's, it church is in, it's being is in its act. And so it's, and its action is in apostolic mission and it's being sent and being gathered uh, by the spirit. And so in that sense, um, unity exists wherever that activity is taking place. It, it, you can't establish it independent of its action. Yeah. Um, so, so it's concrete in that way. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. Uh, so I was reading through the book and, you know, we're talking about the future here, the new millennium. Uh, and, you know, I didn't see Twitter get much of a mention. I didn't see uh, much about the, you know, the vast interwebs that we're all now connected with. Um, do you think like, is, is this a, you know, is the, you know, globalization, I know um, in, in Rogerman's chapter, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but um, I can't speak German. Um, he talked about globalization and the way, you know, these big you know, churches from all around the world are connected through, you know, televised uh, or, or uh, internet spread messages and, and services. And so I guess just thinking about the, the rapid changes in technology and uh, for good and for bad um, and the connectedness of people and how that you think might start to interplay in these missional conversations uh, these conversations of Christian mission going forward. Uh, so I, I've got a sort of answer to that that ties in a little bit with the previous question. Um, so a few months back, I got into some sort of Twitter spat with um, John Milbank <laughs> or, or the or the pseudo John Milbank account, right? So <laughs> in, in part of this was this was in relation to the notion of the ontologies, the Trinitarian ontologies conference that's coming up. You know, one of these. English places, and you know, the to me it's 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 um, heretical, right? <laughs> it, it's it's linked to such a small little um, discussion field. So I raised the idea of Missio Day as something you know that whether you agree with it or not, it was part of the twentieth century discussion about Trinitarian ontologies, right? So you can't sort of ignore that type of thing. So Milbank responded, "I don't know what it is." So then I said, well, you know, that's like saying you don't know what BEM was, right? To which he responded, I don't know what BEM is. So, <laughs> so, I, so I just thought he was taking the shit, but he wasn't. He did not know what Baptist Eucharist, the ministry, uh, ministry document, right? I mean, he doesn't know what BEM is. So this is, this is an enormous privilege to be able to even have some sort of ecumenical document, which, you know, is this attempt to try and come together with something. Uh, and you just can ignore it. You don't know what it is. It doesn't enter with your field of view. By, by contrast, I got invited to go over to Papua New Guinea to deliver a series of lectures. And as a result of this, I went through and read the Melanesian, like the back catalogue of the Melanesian Journal of Theology. And in this, I came across a really interesting piece on BEM, which... It, it's the same thing, right? I've seen a number of times, but it always starts off with this does not answer any of the questions we are asking. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a Melanesian church saying this is a completely irrelevant document, but we're still going to interact with it. 
So this combines technology, right? This is the technology thing. Me and Millbank coming a spat on other parts of the world, right? But also, you know, getting this invite, going through reading the back catalogues and realising that there are just a, a whole... So on one hand, there is this privilege that basically says, we know what the aesthetic is, we know what the true unity of the church is, you've got to follow this line. You know, these are the pictures of the English pastoral countryside that truly tell you what the faith looks like. And then on the other hand, right, and it doesn't even know BEM. And on the other hand, you've got um, Melanesian church that takes these documents seriously. They're completely irrelevant in that context. They're actually sitting down trying to give it respect, however. So there's something wrong there, mm. right? There's a breakdown there somewhere. And to me, that's the opposite of mission. Like that, that, that entire breakdown is the making theological claims about what the normative, normativity of the faith is, how it needs to be translocated versus another group which are struggling with really, really live questions, trying to work out what's going on, paying respect to a whole range of different documents they probably shouldn't pay any respect to whatsoever. <laughs> so to me, this is, this is opening up yeah, so it doesn't matter. See, this is also a bit strange. It doesn't matter how much um, digital openness we get. If we're not theologically open, if we're not actually going to sit there and think about actually what are these different voices trying to tell us, it doesn't matter how many voices we've got. These voices have been around for a long time now and we're just ignoring them. Mm. Well, actually, it's worse than ignoring them. We're going out of our way to say that they're not relevant at all. Mm. So the current climate that we have is this huge pushback against any sort of notion that, other people have different opinions and we need to take those opinions seriously as also being normative for the life of the church. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, John. I'll just chime in from a totally different angle. And that is to say, um, I mean, I do think there is a legitimate volume or book or books that need to be written about, you know, the coming robot revolution or whatever it might be. I mean, and, and how, uh, the, the massive technological changes that are on the horizon are going to affect, you know, like VR churches or whatever. Um, that, I don't, I mean, I'm certainly not competent to, to wrestle with some of those questions. And I think, but I'm very interested in that conversation. I think if we were to um, have tried to engage all those questions in this book, it, it would have been a, a very different volume. Um, and maybe a much more depressing one too. I'm not really sure what the future of the church really is. I, honestly, I mean, I, I teach a course on Reformed theology and Presbyterian history for uh, Dubuque Seminary, um, which is ironic. So I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a Reformed or Presbyterian, but it's nevertheless uh, it's a thing I teach every every term. And I close that course, um, which is the course is structured around the Book of Confessions for the Presbyterian mm. Church in PCUSA. And uh, I close that course every year, every term, with the question about you know what's the future of confessions, the future of the church, future of the denomination itself, or any denomination for that matter. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic about it. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, you know, even though I'm, I'm teaching these students who are entering pastoral ministry of some kind, um, you know, professional, you know, church work of, uh, in various form forms, um, you know, I give them a pretty honest assessment, in my opinion, about uh, the, what the future of that work will be. And I think, um, I, I, you know, so I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, epistemological humility I wanted to have about that future since I don't really, no one can know, prognosticate about what's going to happen on the horizon. At the same time, um, I think the, the, pro, the, the prognosis is grim about a lot of those uh, aspects. And so, uh, grim, I think, yeah. what was that? Grim, where? Oh yeah, Grim. I'm, sorry, I'm talking specifically about North American, you know, de denominations in PCUSA. So it's a it's a specific lo local version of this. But um, uh, so I think the question that that throws open a large issue about um, what mission looks like in the future. It obviously it looks very different from how it's looked in the past. And so this book is certainly kind of tracing certain developments theologically in recent history, and then um, leaving the future a little bit more open to. Uh, I think other voices will have to come in that will change it dramatically. Hmm. It'll hmm. look very different. Yeah. Thanks for that. So uh, as you were reading all the, the essays coming in, do you have a particular moment that comes to mind where you saw someone make a link that you hadn't thought before or a, a fresh kind of critique on something that you, that had been 
bothering you or or a proposal that, that excited you, any of those like, aha, or yes, or oh, right, cool, uh, moments that you want to kind of uh, share as a, as a little teaser for those who might be thinking of diving in. At the risk of playing favourites, you know, just, you know, <laughs> think about your relationships as well and who you'll be seeing at upcoming conferences, you know, feel free to like let all that play a part. Uh, so the, for example, Christina Lienemann talking about the language of Christendom. So the language of Christendom is an interesting one for me because it has a massive, so whether you're talking post-liberal theology, whether you're talking, you know, uh, the James K.A. Smith type of thing, whether you're talking about the Anabaptist type of thing, the, you know, the let's go back to pre-Constantine type of thing. Christendom is a linchpin theological concept, right? So everything's bouncing off this notion of Christendom. The problem is it's an ill-defined idea. So... It's a, it's a placeholder for everything evil or everything good. <laughs> and it doesn't really have any. So, for example, if you go to sociological descriptions of secularization, you will never see the term Christendom used ever. So it has no probative value within sociologists talking about secularization. So the, the end of Christendom is an irrelevance, right, to that discussion. Whereas, for, so it's, it's a deep theological term that has no meaning. So, but it has huge amounts of theological weight. Mm. It's really, it's a really odd sort of thing. So, especially in the missional church type of discussion, Christendom has been this massive thing that people are bouncing off. So, we actually go and examine the merits or the lack of merits of that term or how it changes over time or what it's actually meant because it's only really had a negative meaning for 60 years. Mm. Uh, and Why? Right, so if if we can if we can make a straw man of Christendom, for good or for ill, then it's going to lead our theological agendas in a different way. And I think it's uh, it's a term really lacking in any sort of merit. So you know, essays like that, I think, do move the discussion forward. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that one. That was probably the more interesting essay to me. Um, I, I would also lift up Deanna Womack's essay, but but. In, um, and and kind of a larger conversation about interfaith dialogue more generally. I think that's that's in there in a few few pieces. Uh, I think that's an increasingly important angle and approach um, within this conversation. So, um, yeah. Cool. Thank you. So, so as we come toward the end, uh, some regular viewers and listeners will know that I've started a game called Pairings, uh, which is you take your book and we need to pair it. So we need uh, a good... Uh, a good meal that goes with the book. You know, what are you, what are you going to sit down with and, and eat while you read? Uh, a good song to listen to, but, uh, you know, between, before, after uh, a song or an album. Uh, and then another book to pair this with. So once you've read this, what do you read? Um, and I'm going to go ahead and disqualify books by either John G. <laughs> Flett or David W. Congdon from the pairings uh, thing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a meal. Wow. Uh, boy, it's tough. Mm. Kimchi. Oh, yeah. I go for kimchi every time. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All right. Korean barbecue, man. I love that. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Cool. I, I think that's appropriate for the book and for a few different reasons. But yes, I go with that. Would you say a song? Yeah, a song <laughs> or an album. Yeah, some sort of music to. To play, you know. And I, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I'm not gonna be listening to anything except for the new Tool album for the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> and that sucker comes out. All right, cool. So we got <laughs> the new Tool album uh, goes pairs with Converting Witness. David, do you want to add a, a song or an album? That's good. <laughs> no, I guess you're fighting against the present order and, you know, pushing forward in, in, in new ways. And you're honoring, you know, some, you know, someone who's been around from the past into the present. You know, I think it actually, I can see it. All right. And uh, another book. So people, have, if they've read through the essays here, what do you think is another good book to go to um, at that point? 
I mean, an obvious choice is one of Guter's own books, like Be My Witness, probably, or mm-hmm. um, Continuing Conversion of the Church. That would be the, those are the kind of the obvious choices. Uh, I don't know, John, what do you think? I'd, well, I'd go Continuing Conversion. It's, yeah. you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit dated now. I mean, it's been out for a while, but it's definitely his um, key text. And, yeah. and, and all the theology that we try and talk about uh, in our book is rooted really, I think, in, in what he did there. Yep, that's Great. true. I agree. Uh, so, guys, what, what do you want to plug? How can people connect with you? What should they be looking for, picking up? What's happening on your guys' end? Well, I'm going to AAR SBL for the first time in 15 years, which, you know, it's, it's an ambiguous experience for me. But uh, <laughs> we're hoping to uh, launch the book, this book, uh, there. So, uh if you want to, just send me a message. We'll catch up for a coffee. There you go. I'm not going this year, unfortunately. I'll be at a different conference across the other side of the U.S. But um, I don't have a lot coming up. I mean, John, you have a book coming out probably, right? Or at least uh, oh, you're not... A good couple on the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything on the horizon. So I'm, I'm sort of knee-deep in a whole different discipline with my editorial work on mm. political science and law. So it's... Uh, I'm writing, but uh, whenever those things will see the light of day, it's yep. not clear to me. Well, both of you are good followers on Twitter. So it's uh, DW Congdon on Twitter and at Flat John on Twitter. Uh, and as we mentioned before, the book in question is Converting Witness, The Future of Christian Missions Mission in the New Millennium, which you can get now. And obviously there's also The God Who Saves and The Mission of Demythologizing and John's book, the witness of God and apostolicity. So you can always, you know, if you haven't checked those out, check those out and, and yeah, follow on Twitter and, and all of that and uh, yeah, share with your friends. Um, gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. No worries.